Father, we thank you again for the privilege that it is to be together and to uh, devote these 45 minutes to studying your word and to uh, even looking at uh, topics and things that we might not be uh, looking at otherwise. We thank you that you um, give us this time to do that. We thank you for your promise to uh, be with us when we gather in the name of your son. And we take confidence in that promise now and pray that you would be present by your spirit. Uh, that your spirit would teach us and that your spirit would apply the truths of the gospel to our hearts and that uh, in very specific ways we would see um, what it looks like to put on Christ and to uh, to put ourselves in the way of your work in our lives that changes us and transforms us and uh, remakes the image of your son Jesus in us. Uh, so we pray that all those things would happen this morning uh, all because you promised to do so pray in Christ's name. Amen. Come on in and grab a hand out there. Uh, just a quick review, talking about spiritual formation. Um, what we said early on is that we are fundamentally desiring or loving or worshiping creatures. And so uh, when we start talking about change and transformation, we want to talk about how our desires and our loves are transformed, and the way that we've talked about that is in terms of these practices of spiritual formation, and so that's uh, that's what we're looking at. A couple quotes from uh, Dallas Willard that are helpful that can kind of keep us on the right track here. Uh, first is that grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. We're, we're justified completely by uh, what God has done for us. We play no role in that whatsoever. But in our sanctification, God's grace is at work in us, but then he calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling uh, because it's God that is at work in us. And then another way to think about this is sort of getting in the way of the Spirit's work, uh, getting in the way of uh, the, the ways in which God promises to change us, and uh, particularly ways that he would uh, promise to change what we love and what we desire. And that's uh, Willard's second quote there. We must seek out ways to live and act in union with the flow of God's kingdom life that should come through our relationship with Jesus. So getting in the way of the Spirit's work, I think, is helpful. Uh, this morning, we're looking at a, um, I don't know what adjective to use, um, unique, uh, maybe not talked about topic. Um, we're going to talk about fasting. And uh, this is an interesting uh, quote. A little section in Richard Foster's book I came across this week. He, he talks about doing research for this book that he wrote on spiritual disciplines. It's called Celebration of Discipline. And he says, in doing research for that book that was first published in 1978, so we're talking late 70s here, he said he could find no books published on the subject of Christian fasting from 1861 to 1954. Almost 100 years. Uh, and, and I was thinking about this, that it's, uh, there's a, been a bit of resurgence in that way. Uh, but I could only think of Piper's book, A Hunger for God, that is sort of in our circles as a, as a book that's about fasting. So I, I think that's, that's pretty interesting. And I want to throw it out as a question there. Why, uh, why do you think that's the case? Why would a topic like this be neglected in that way? Thoughts? Yeah, go ahead, Jim. Uh, well, I think uh, during that period of time, you had the Civil War, you had Great Depression, and people were basically hungry. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, 
I had not thought of historical reasons like that. That's interesting. Uh, along with that, one of the reasons that Foster gives as to why it's neglected now is because we live in a society of total abundance in terms of food, where we literally never think about or are really concerned about whether or not we're going to eat. It's only a question of what we're going to eat. Uh, and that would make a lot of sense then of that, that time in history as well. Yeah, that's great. What else? Why else? Why might it not be talked about now as often? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we, we can uh, we, we take care of ourselves, that we, we look to ourselves to provide everything and all everything that we need. And um, so recognizing this dependence or sense of dependence on God in that way might not seem as important. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a huge one. And um, yeah, the connotations or maybe associations of fasting with um, with some kind of ascetic practices that, that would that were thought to sort of earn God's favor in some way. And so, yeah, we kind of think fasting sounds like the worst of like what a monastery was all about or something, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. reaction against liberalism and during that time there was almost a uh, a feeling of anathema against the Catholic Church which had always practiced fasting yeah yeah and I rub shoulders with so many Catholics that fasting is not foreign to me at all yeah and the this this see it sort of seems like it could be a contributor to me especially with the Mm-hmm. The reaction partly against liberalism, of course, but yeah. some it, in some respects from things I have personally witnessed, even against the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Beth. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Right, yeah, yeah, the, the, we, we have a sense of entitlement, uh, an expectation of comfort and happiness at all times. Why would I put myself in that situation? Yeah. I'm thinking too, I don't know if this trend has been generational or if this is just more current, but doesn't it also begin to be we live in a really big community where there's people a lot and eating together a lot, and mm-hmm. it's like, what are you going to say you're fasting? And then, yeah. like, am I being falsely pious or is there like a, oh, I mean, I just think there's a, there can be an awkwardness with, yeah. you know, like you can't, you can't fast and remove yourself from people. I yeah. I about making others feel uncomfortable or that you feel like they're better. That's a, yes. I don't want to scoreboard everybody all the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's so good. We'll talk some about that. Um, We'll talk some about that. Yeah, because you start wondering, is this exactly what Jesus is saying not to do in the Sermon on the Mount? That's what I think about. Yeah, and, and how do you bring that up without scoreboarding somebody? Yeah. But we're, we're scoreboarding. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. we'll talk some about that. It's good. Okay, um, 
we're going to look at uh, a few points here. The first is just a basic definition of what fasting is. Uh, I've got a few of them listed for you. Calhoun says this, a fast is the self-denial of normal necessities in order to intentionally attend to God in prayer. That's going to become really important, the connection between fasting and prayer. Bringing attachments and cravings to the surface opens a place for prayer. This physical awareness of emptiness is the reminder to turn to Jesus, who alone can satisfy. And then one from Willard, in fasting we abstain in some significant way from food and possibly from drink as well. Uh, Whitney says about the same thing there. Uh, some, uh, and that would include Calhoun, and you can see in her definition there that first one, but also Richard Foster and even Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, talk about fasting in terms broader or fasting from things other than just food. Um, and you see that, that's what I think of like Facebook, and you probably saw like during Lent where people are talking about like see you in 40 days or whatever because I'm getting off Facebook, something like that. And then I saw somebody else say, well, that is their reward uh, in the words of Jesus from Matthew 6. <laughs> Doing it in front of everybody, there you go. Hope you enjoyed it. That was your reward. Um, but biblically speaking, uh, it's really about fasting from food um, in, in different ways and for different reasons. And there's always a connection with prayer, and that's going to be huge to remember. Uh, it's actually, fasting is mentioned explicitly in the Bible 77 times. And here's what's interesting about that. Uh, baptism is only mentioned 75 in a very specific way. So it's interesting, uh, this emphasis. A uh, quick list of biblical figures who fasted. This is all to help us see the importance of it. Uh, Moses, David, Elijah, Esther, Daniel, Anna the prophetess, Paul, and then Jesus himself. So a pretty significant list there. Here are a few, uh, a few Old Testament examples. One is on the Day of Atonement. And this was actually the only day prescribed for Israel as a, uh, as a day of fasting. So that's there in Leviticus 16 for you as well as Leviticus 23. Uh, it later is expanded to four when they're in exile, but initially it's just one day a year on that day. There are also times where they're fasting during national emergencies. And I think what's important to see here, in fact, we'll just read this, Second Chronicles. Uh, look at verse three. Notice that fasting is not an end in itself. He says, then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. So significantly there that, that fasting is a way in which they are then going to seek help from the Lord. So they, they cry out to God in the midst of these emergencies, times when they're really desperate uh, for God's intervention in some way. And then while they're in exile in Babylon, uh, see in Zechariah there four times a year, uh, that are then prescribed for national fasts. And there are other Old Testament examples. Those are just some of the big ones. You think of Daniel uh, fasting, just having uh, water and vegetables for a time, wouldn't eat the, uh, the food, uh, the, the other food that was put before him. Uh, New Testament examples. A uh, quick caution up front here, though. And this is, I think, another reason why maybe fasting is not talked about as often. So there is not an explicit or overt biblical command to do this. Okay, I think we're, we're going to see in a moment here through a couple of passages in the Gospels that there is an expectation of it, but there's not something in the form of a, uh, of a command or an obligation in that way. And Jesus was very, uh, I mean, very intentional to, 
to not prescribe specific ways to fast or times to fast. And that was something different from like we saw in the Old Testament. Um, so I think, I think that's significant as to why we don't talk about it as often or why it, uh, we might be hesitant or uncertain as to how and whether we should practice this. Uh, a few passages that will uh, most likely be familiar here. One is Jesus fasting in the wilderness. That's Matthew 4. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Um, didn't require his followers to keep a specific schedule, but he himself fasted. And then this well-known passage in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Uh, Interesting context here, because Jesus is talking about the dangers of hypocrisy in this whole section. Uh, This is where the Lord's prayer is contained in the Sermon on the Mount. And what's interesting is that fasting, while not specifically commanded here, comes also in the context of uh, his words on giving and his words on prayer. Those are the other two areas where he talks about the dangers of hypocrisy, that you don't want to pray in order to be seen. You don't want to give in order to be seen. He says you also don't want to fast in order to be seen. So I think that's important that those that that's the association, because, of course, in other places, prayer and giving are explicitly commanded and called for. Um, But here it's included with fasting. So I think that could lend some weight to seeing uh, some expectation of some kind of practice of fasting and then Matthew 9 this is a good one Uh, then the disciples of John came to him saying why do we and the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast and Jesus said to them can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast so Words here in response to this question from John's disciples, he says it's not appropriate to fast when the bridegroom is there. That's a time of feasting. Uh, But there's going to come a time when uh, when it will uh, be appropriate to fast because Jesus will be away again. And uh, and then this passage of the early church here in Acts comes after Jesus's ascension. So he he's bodily absent at this point. The assumption then is that this is now a time in which fasting becomes appropriate. Doesn't downplay the significance of feasting as well, and we'll we'll talk some about that. Uh, but it, it seems to be that Jesus would expect this to be the time when we would fast. And this is in Acts 13. You have an example of it. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, "Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them." Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them. And sent them off. Again, notice connection between fasting and prayer. Uh, Other quick examples here. Um, The Didache, which was this uh, second century document of the early church, had prescribed times for fasting. They they said uh, it it said Wednesdays and Fridays. Those were the days that were set aside for for fasting. Uh, Other people in church history who have seen and uh, seen the benefits of fasting. This is just to kind of lend some more credence. Martin Luther. Uh, John Knox, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, and David Brainerd all made uh, significant use of this practice. A good quote from Luther there, it was not Christ's intention to reject or despise fasting. 
It was his intention to restore proper fasting. And then I have a paragraph there from the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, that, that's setting forth what uh, the elements of worship are, what, what we would see as regular parts of worship. And you'll see, as I've got it highlighted there for you, one of them uh, are solemn fasting. So that's even in our, um, in our doctrinal standards. Okay, uh, I want to move to this next section of challenges, difficulties, and even dangers. Uh, I'm, let me put that out there as a question. What are some potential difficulties, um, potential pitfalls or dangers that we might face as we uh, would begin to think about and, and begin practicing fasting? Yeah, Sarah Julie. Food becomes a God into itself. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, and we'll we'll talk certainly about this. How uh, I mean, the phrase "comfort food" um, says maybe more than we want it to. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that, that it becomes a, a source of comfort, a way to yeah, medicate. Yeah. 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 I know. I know. Um, and uh, it was interesting uh, on this uh, a few years back in the uh, on the there's an email list of all the RUF campus ministers, and uh, and one guy put forward this idea that w- with sort of this resurgence with like Food Network, uh, all the the shows about cooking and eating and this emphasis on where our food comes from and sometimes almost an obsession with it and you've got it not just like healthy eating you've also got like uh, diners drive-ins and dives and like eating all you can, the, you know, the biggest, the best thing I ever ate. And he said, it's almost like food has become the new sex for our culture. <laughs> that it becomes this thing that's sort of obsessive and that, that, uh, that everybody is uh, like almost seeking meaning in and trying to define their lives by. So I, I don't know if that's right or not, but I thought that was a pretty interesting observation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm finding our identity in food and what we eat and, um, yeah. What else? Other possible challenges, difficulties, etc. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so easy. Okay, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think that maybe maybe without speaking for us, uh, we don't practice the rule that that uh, that day our fasting requires fasting is really going to be a a hiccup or battle. I don't think it's a a young verse. He says, "If I fast as I have told you, a day shall not escape his soul." To just to bow down. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So good. And that's yeah. We'll we'll read that exact passage coming up. That's yeah. That's great, Max. Yeah, Tim. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here are a few, uh, a few potential pitfalls uh, that, that we can fall into uh, in addition to those we've mentioned here. Uh, one danger is fasting apart from Christ, you could say it that way, or without a Godward focus. Uh, and you see that the passage there from Zechariah 7, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And then a passage from Colossians 2 that may have come to mind as, as we, I mean, we've talked about this in the context of any spiritual discipline, that it can become this sort of ascetic practice when it's separated from Jesus, when it's viewed as something other than uh, a, a way in which we could get ourselves in the, um, in the way of the Spirit's work in our lives. So uh, fasting apart from Christ or for motives other than something that would be Godward in its orientation. A uh, big obvious one that Jesus points out is fasting in order to be seen. We've already looked at that passage in uh, Matthew 6. It's printed again for you. Uh, I think it's significant there. He says in verse 16, he says, I say to you, they've received their reward. So that sense of uh, pride that you get when you say, I'm fasting today, I can't, you know, I can't do whatever. Or, you know, in some way to do this in order to be seen, Jesus is saying, that's your reward. I hope you're happy with it. That's it, you know. Um, and the other example uh, in the scriptures that we see of this is, uh, if you remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where he's praying his resume publicly and talks about fasting twice a week in that context. And then finally, this gets at what Max mentioned, fasting while in blatant rebellion or sin. And it's interesting here that fasting is connected to ministering to the needs of others, and that's why Israel is being uh, is getting in trouble here in Isaiah 58. Let me read this. This is a, a, a very important passage when it comes to fasting. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself? From your own flesh. So close connection there between our relationships with those around us, the way we'd be ministering, particularly to those who are in need in this context, uh, and that with a blatant disregard of those things, fasting is not going to have its desired ends. Uh, so those are a few, uh, few things that we need to be on the lookout for. Okay, why should we fast then? What are the positive purposes or reasons for this, and you'll notice there's going to be a whole lot of overlap in these. Some of these I'm just uh, I'm trying to emphasize different aspects of this that uh, could be important for us. Uh, maybe the, the most significant point, as we've already mentioned, is to say that fasting must be God-centered and God-focused. Uh, so it, it should be first and foremost this expression of love and of worship to God. And again, it's going to be combined with prayer. And that's the example of Anna in Luke 2 
And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Clearly God-oriented in this and associated with worship and with prayer. And that's the, the next purpose for this is that fasting strengthens prayer. Quote from Calvin, whenever men are to pray to God concerning any great matter, it would be expedient to appoint fasting along with prayer. And then from Donald Whitney, the most important aspect of this discipline is its influence on prayer. You'll notice that in one way or another, all the other biblical purposes of fasting relate to prayer. That's, that's important. Fasting is one of the best friends we can introduce to our prayer life. And then this next quote is from Willard. We've looked at this in the past uh, as we've talked about prayer. And, and one of the, what he says here is that one of the reasons that our prayer lives suffer is that we've not built in these other disciplines that, that uh, create space for prayer and, and that enhance uh, and encourage our prayer. And if you look at the, even just that first sentence, but prayer will not be established in our lives as it must be for us to flourish unless we're practicing other disciplines such as solitude and fasting. And then the last sentence of that quote, they've not been shown how to change their life as a whole, permeating it with appropriate disciplines say fasting in that context, so that prayer and Bible reading will be spiritually successful. So I think that's a helpful thing to keep in mind here, that, that the end result is, a, uh, is an enhanced prayer life with God. Uh, again, connected with, our, uh, with ministry to others, as, uh, as is said in Isaiah 58 there, but uh, it's not an end in, in and of itself here. Uh, this is to cultivate communion with God in and through prayer. Other purposes related to prayer that I don't have on here, uh, but that are related to this prayer of seeking deliverance or protection. You see that as an example in the scriptures as a reason for fasting. Uh, humbling oneself before God. Uh, taking stock in some way of, of kind of where you are in a healthy reflection and an examination of your own life. And then uh, expressing some concern for the work of God. And that gets back to that Calvin quote there, where um, if there's something, some great matter for which we're praying, it's appropriate to combine it with fasting in order to take those times where you would be eating and, and then and be praying. And then another way to, to think about this is that every time hunger arises, one pang of hunger arises, turn to Jesus and pray in that moment for whatever that matter is that you're praying about. So connected to prayer, uh, it enhances our prayer life. It's uh, important for prayer in that way. Uh, thirdly, fasting exposes our hearts, our false self, and our idols, which is really just uh, saying the same thing there in a few different ways. And this, uh, Julie, I think you said this, uh, or used this sort of language. This is from Philippians 3. Their end is, their, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And when he says their God is their belly, he means certainly more than just food. Uh, but that they'd be looking to satisfy this appetite su such that like that their, their uh, object of worship um, is the satisfaction of these desires, of these, um, of these selfish bodily desires. And uh, they've become gods to them. And so what fasting does is then it, then it exposes those idols for us. And that's what Foster says. More than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. And then Calhoun, fasting exposes how we try to keep empty hunger at bay 
and gain a sense of well-being by devouring creature comforts. Through self-denial, we begin to recognize what controls us. And then Willard's maybe the most uh, frank of all. It will certainly prove humiliating to us as it reveals to us how much our peace depends on, upon the pleasures of eating. It may also bring to mind how we are using food pleasure to assuage the discomforts caused in our bodies by faithless and unwise living and attitudes, lack of self-worth, meaningless work, purposeless existence, or lack of rest or exercise. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, <laughs> you've gone from preaching to meddling. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, uh, this, is, uh, this might be, I mean, I don't want to say it's the most significant thing about fasting, but it's certainly one of the biggest and if you just think, and I don't want to downplay the, the fact that we are embodied, uh, your blood sugar level matters. Um, it is important in all of these ways to take care of our bodies. Um, but you can think about how easily we turn from any kind of discomfort, uh, emotional, relational, whatever, by numbing out with food. I'm going to eat whatever I want tonight because I've had a horrible day. Um, you, you think about how you can blame behavior on not eating uh, when, in fact, our, our own hearts are being exposed in those moments. And again, I, our bodies matter and it does have, have an impact on us. But I think uh, this is a, a difficult uh, but really beneficial aspect of fasting that it exposes a lot of those things for us. And then, again, this is where they really start to overlap, but I just want to get at some different angles here. Uh, fasting directly and obviously affects our desires. I mean, we, you are, we're clearly in the realm of desire at that point when you're dealing with these pangs of hunger. And that's powerful for us in terms of formation. It gets at the very physical nature of our desires, and that's the next point, that fasting takes our bodies seriously. Uh, this is really interesting. Uh, Lauren Winter's book... Uh, Real Sex, which is an awkward one to read in public. That's why things like the Kindle are great. So you don't have a book cover that says Real Sex on it <laughs> at the coffee shop. Uh, it's a book that, that's all about, it's a kind of a Christian theology of sexuality. And it's really interesting because in this section on chastity, she talks about how fasting could be related to that. Uh, and here's what she says. She says, when fa what fasting is slowly teaching me is the simple lesson that I'm not utterly subject to my bodily desires. And then another quote from her. Fasting is the practice that most obviously helps us learn to discipline our physical selves. And so I, I think this is so helpful for us that um, and, and it makes sense. If you think about how uh, food, the use of food, the use of pornography uh, the use, uh, misuse of our sexuality in, the, in other ways are oftentimes ways in which we would just seek to either escape from some discomfort that we're not happy with in our lives at that moment and then connected to that and or control our circumstances in some way. Uh, and so it, it's, I think it's really interesting to connect these two ways in which we would deal with those, uh, those idols, those, uh, that false self, that discomfort, by these uh, embodied ways of sinning, food and sex. And so, uh, and I, there were times where with uh, college students where I, I recommended this to them in the context of their struggle with pornography and, uh, and sexual sin in that way. As I said, I always kind of preface it with like, this sounds weird, but uh, fasting can be something that connects to the fact that we are embodied 
and help us in that regard. So take seriously our, our, uh, our bodies. Fasting then is, again, an embodied act of trusting in God alone. We saw this with, uh, with silence and solitude as well. And what this does is it teaches us in a very physical way to recognize and then appreciate our complete dependence upon God. Here's Willard again. Fasting confirms our utter dependence upon God by finding in him a source of sustenance beyond food. Through it, we learn by experience that, the, the God, that God's word to us is a life substance, that it's not food, bread alone that gives life, but also the words that proceed from the mouth of God. So it's this uh, clear and constant sense, is what another author says, of the resources that we have in him. And so, and the way we can practice this, and I'll have this in the next section, but as that hunger arises, that literal physical sense of hunger arises, take that, an opportunity to, take that as an opportunity to turn to Jesus, express your complete need of him in that moment, your complete dependence upon him for the whole of your life. Uh, then fasting teaches self-control, moderation, and restraint. We've seen this some in that, those quotes from Lauren Winter. Uh, fasting teaches temperance or self-control and therefore te- teaches moderation and restraint with regard to all our fundamental drives. Since food has the pervasive place in, it has the pervasive place, it, do- it does in our lives, sorry. I think I might have actually been dictating um, with this. Uh, that, uh, you can get a lot of errors in that way when you're trying to speak it into the microphone. Uh, the place it does in our lives. The effects of fasting will be diffused throughout our personality. In the midst of all our needs and wants, we experience the contentment of the, chi- of the child that has been weaned from its mother's breast. And then a quote from Plantinga. Self-indulgence is the enemy of gratitude, and self-discipline usually its friend and generator. That is why gluttony is a deadly sin. The early desert fathers believed that a person's appetites are linked Full stomachs and jaded palates take the edge from our hunger and thirst for righteousness. They spoil the appetite for God. It's a good quote. Uh, then fasting teaches us how to suffer happily and feast on God in the midst of it. So Andrew Murray there, fasting helps to express, to deepen, to confirm the resolution that we're ready to sacrifice anything, sacrifice ourselves to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. So it helps us in enduring that. And finally, uh, arguably most importantly, uh, fasting is where we meet Jesus. Uh, Fasting is actually feasting on the Lord, and that's what Willard says. We learn that we too have have meat to eat that the world does not know about, in reference to John 4 there. Fasting under our Lord is therefore feasting, feasting on him and on doing his will. And I do think, and this gets some to, um, to what Kristen had said about really cherishing and enjoying feasting with the people of God. And it's really interesting that in liturgical traditions that have uh, some, that, that practice some form of the church calendar, they'll have, uh, they'll have these fasting seasons. We're in one now in Lent. But then they have these feast days as well that are built into to this calendar. Uh, and Easter is meant to be this huge feast in that way. Uh, that it would be a huge celebration, and that's uh, and and I, we constantly have to keep that in mind too when we start talking about fasting. Uh, that's that we, we do and will partake of a huge feast, a huge banquet in the end, and there are times where it's totally appropriate and right to relish in all that Jesus is to us now, 
in the context of these banquets and this feasting in that way because those point forward to the end. So there's, there's always both, fasting and feasting, not one without the other. You've got to uh, hold them together. Okay, some, uh, some quick pointers here as to how we could actually begin fasting. And I, I have that footnoted there with some resources as to where these come from. Uh, and if you notice it under the recommended reading, there's one chapter in Whitney's book that's a great book just to have on your shelf. But then you can get what really is Whitney's chapter distilled down to like a two-page PDF uh, from Christchurch's website there. Uh, so you can go to that link and, and get some helpful stuff there. Uh, first thing to say is uh, we are talking about not eating here. And if you have a specific medical condition where that is not good, we need to take that seriously. So really do check with your doctor if it's something that you have questions about. Uh, and then start with one meal. Fast from lunch for one particular day. Uh, make sure that you're drinking lots of water. And then, uh, D, there, anytime hunger arises in the context of that day, take that opportunity to turn to Jesus and confess your complete dependence upon him. Let thoughts of food prompt thoughts of God in that way. Take that meal time, the time that you would be devoting to lunch, and spend it in prayer. Uh, pray for some specific needs, uh, or spend that time, that's what I have for this next point, is, is meditating on scripture. Uh, Psalm 63 is a great example of this because it's David talking about his desires for the Lord. And I think that's a powerful place to be meditating in the midst of a, uh, an experience of this physical desire being manifest and, uh, and, and wanting more and more to desire the Lord and have him transform our loves and desires in that. And then Matthew 4, 4, which is uh, Jesus's own temptation uh, and fasting in the wilderness. Uh, maybe after trying one meal, you can go then to uh, a what would be um, two, for two meals where you would begin a fast after dinner one night and then fast for breakfast and lunch the next day and then that afternoon or early evening with dinner uh, break your fast at that point. Real practically, don't break your fast with a huge meal. It's a temptation, but try not to do that. Uh, eat small portions, introduce. They, a, a lot of people recommend light vegetables and things as a way to kind of reintroduce food into your system. Uh, and then the longer you fast, the more you need to break that fast uh, gently. And then from Willard, attempt to practice it well enough and often enough to become experienced in it. So he recommends, he, he's big on some form of regular fasting. Because what he says is that if we don't have that in place, um, it's difficult to experience the benefits of it when you do think, there's some great matter before us, and we need to pray and be fasting um, in this context. Yeah, Steve. Um, it, you know, it seems, and I know it's not as big uh, or it's not instituted like the Lord's Supper is, but it, it does seem like a, a physical reality that kind of points to a spiritual reality. In that, you know, our hunger and need for Christ it is, is so real. I mean, I didn't eat breakfast this morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, all right. Did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy the... No. I've got this gnawing hunger. Yeah. Now, and, you know, it really does kind of point... You know, I, I think it's I think it's very instructive that, that, you know, it kind of points to it in the same way I just draw the analogy of, you know, whenever uh, uh, we, we take the elements, it really points to what this really these are. So Christ sacrificed for us. It's just 
Yeah, that's, yeah, excellent point. Absolutely, yeah. Um, help, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Matt. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So true. Uh, good quote from Foster that helps us. Uh, I think, Kristen, this sort of gets at your uh, question early on or point early on. The only ones who should know your fasting are those who have to know. Uh, if you call attention to your fasting, people will be impressed. And as Jesus said, that will be your reward. Uh, and then finally, don't beat yourself up if you fail to keep your fast. Um <laughs> Let it remind you that you are a flawed, imperfect human being who's beloved by God and in need of his grace. And don't let failure keep you from pursuing and making progress towards your goal. Uh, a few questions for reflection there. I think maybe that first one could be most important and helpful for us, at least initially. When you feel empty or restless, what do you do to try to fill the emptiness? What does this tell you about your heart? And then start thinking about how fasting might uh, help us in that regard. Brian? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a, I mean, th- this as an example is a context for it, but yeah, I think um, there, probably any, uh, any spiritual practice is in danger of becoming something that we could do in order to be seen. And we still find ways to talk about our prayer lives. We still find ways to talk about the ways and uh, that we would go about reading the Bible and studying the scriptures and um, wanting to be helpful to one another in that. And so I think trying to put it in that in that same realm and go, okay, we know that struggle and like you're not parading around what your quiet times look like all the time, but we do. We can ask like, what does this look like in your life? How are these practices taking shape? Let's talk about it some. So. Great point. Um, yeah, I'd love to talk more about this. Let me. Uh, we need to wrap up now, though. So let me. Uh, let me pray for us.